It is five o'clock in Salford. Welcome to Monday's Richie Allen Show. Hope you had a lovely weekend. Thank you for joining me. Do drop me a line during the programme with your thoughts, your opinions, your comments. I'm at richieallen.co.uk. Uh, where it says comment live, comment live. Ah, oh, yeah. Monday, start of a brand new week. I'm looking forward to it. It's the BBG, not the BBC. This is your Richie Allen Show, live from the magnificent city of Salford. It's the Richie Allen Show, broadcasting live on richieallen.co.uk and multiple platforms around the world. And now, here's your host, Richie Allen. I will be joined this hour by Professor Norman Fenton. Norman is a retired Professor Emeritus of Risk at Queen Mary University, London. He's a mathematician by training. He's published many books on statistics and numbers. He has testified in major trials, criminal and civil cases. He's a bit of an expert on stats and on equations and how to figure out what's really going on, crunching the numbers. He is uh, the author of a blog called wherearethenumbers.substack.com. In fact, it's more like a newsletter, wherearethenumbers.substack.com. He runs that with an equally qualified man, Professor Martin Neal. And they decided to look into the claims made around COVID-19. And they're basically looking into all of the numbers, the death numbers, vaccine injuries, all of that. You don't want to miss Professor Norman Fenton. He's my guest this Monday and will be with me in a half an hour's time. Yes, it is uh, the 13th of March, 2023. I'm the BBG. This is your Richie Allen Show. Good weekend, one and all. You did, you did. Good, good, good. Went to the football yesterday. Wish I hadn't. It was boring. Boring. That's a United Southampton yesterday afternoon. Should have stayed home and watched the rugby, which wasn't boring at all. I caught the last 30 minutes of that epic Scotland-Ireland game at Murrayfield. But that was my weekend, chilling watching the sport. March of many weathers is certainly true today. We've had the full gamut thus far this Monday. Rain, wind, mild temperatures, climate changing. Natural climate changing in March. Anywho, leave that there. Leave that there. Go on, Ireland, by the way, etc., etc. Gary Lineker then, eh? Don't worry, we won't spend too much time on this. Every news channel in the country led today, led with it, elevated the importance of this story, which is it a story, is it a non-story? The former Tottenham and Barcelona and England striker. He also played in Japan, didn't he? Where he broke his toe. And then he retired after breaking his toe, I think. So Gary Lineker then, he's been hosting sport on the BBC for nearly three decades. He is the current host of Match of the Day, the Saturday evening highlights programme. There's a match of the day two on Sunday, but he doesn't present that. Now, he is going to be back presenting Match of the Day this coming weekend. He missed out this weekend as bosses asked him to temporarily step down as they tried to figure out what to do about him and his opinions. You see, he likes to opine on social media about all manner of things he knows nothing about. I would argue that is his prerogative. That is his human right. I don't care where he works. If you want to say something, you should say it. That is my opinion. But he's allegedly agreed to keep his opinions to himself for now, pending a review into these BBC guidelines. So that's, I mean, that's, I mean, it's top news today. Let's just grab a couple of wee opinions, a couple of opinions which 
are relevant. Reform Party leader Richard Tice, who is the partner of Isabel Oakshot, who broke the Matt Hancock WhatsApp message leaks. And Richard Tice also presents a radio programme for Talk TV. He was on GB News today, Richard Tice. He also brought the BBC into disrepute. I mean, it's an absolute shambles. They're there to give the news, not to be the news. Mm. All the other presenters, likewise, brought the whole uh, channel into disrepute and they should be properly sanctioned. Many people will be happy they've reached an agreement, but it's, a, it's an absolute turning point for the relationship of the BBC and the UK uh, population. Why should we pay, mm. be forced to pay a licence mm. fee, if it's no longer going to be an impartial, trusted public but service broadcast? But it hasn't broadcast? been that, Rich. This is Bev Turner, co-presenting this programme with Andrew Pearce. Hasn't been impartial, she says. Richard, it hasn't been an impartial, trusted. But it, but that's what for we've been told. For such a long time. You're, you're right, but we were told that it's supposed to be. And if it's not, and if we accept that, and that's yes. what the charter says. And that's what the charter. If we accept that, then that's absolutely fine. I'm happy to pay a, uh, let's say, a fee for BBC mm. News to be impartial. But if I don't want all the other stuff. I don't want to be forced uh, to pay. And have you seen his tweet today saying how thrilled he yes. is and how grateful he is to Tim Davey, the Director-General? And by the way, my view on this bill is yeah. so he's effectively cocked a snook at the BBC. He's untouchable now. He will say and do what and, he likes. And the point is, no-one is indispensable. Interesting that the viewership on, uh, yeah, on Saturday evening went up by half a million. I wasn't one of them, but nevertheless. Yeah, interesting that the numbers watching Match of the Day on Saturday went up by half a million. This is, it's not quite fake news, but they are bending that story to suit their own narrative. Of course, there was going to be a little bit of an upsurge in viewing numbers for Match of the Day in light of all the publicity. Of course, people were going to tune in to see what sort of programme was aired in the absence of Gary Lineker and Ian Wright. So Richard Tice is, as usual, being a bit disingenuous. He's a world-class bullshitter, Richard Tice. We'll leave him alone for now. Jacob Rees-Mogg then, the, the Conservative Party MP, the leftover from the 18th century. You know Jacob Rees-Mogg, terminological inexactitude, darling. Mogg has now got a programme on GB News. Yes, I won't... I won't roast that chestnut again. I've done it too many times. But uh, he's on GB News. He was on the same programme talking about this and he said one or two interesting things. The issue is about the BBC rather than about Gary Lineker's view. He's entitled to have any view that he wants. That, yeah. um, we are all in favour of freedom of speech and people being allowed to say things that we don't agree with or we may even find offensive. And that's absolutely fine. He can say what he likes. The issue is that the BBC is the state broadcaster and that it's funded by a tax on televisions. If it weren't... That's a nonsense from Rhys Mogg. Of course, he's right to say the BBC is funded by a tax. A tax with very little representation, it might be added. Of course it is, but it is preposterous to assume, it is preposterous to complain and to insinuate that the average Joe and Josephine blogs, when they see Gary Lineker on Twitter shouting about migrants and about Nazi language, it is preposterous to claim that the average Joe blogs believes that Gary Lineker is speaking on behalf of the BBC. That is rubbish. Gary Lineker is a sports presenter. If a journalist working for the BBC... I use the term loosely there now. If somebody presenting news for them or producing news was to be doing it, Mog might have an argument. But nobody with a figment, with, with, with a modicum of a brain, 
believes that Gary Lineker, when he speaks, is representing the BBC. At least that's my opinion. Then we wouldn't need to worry about its impartiality. And actually... It isn't impartial, though. If we change the funding mechanism of the BBC, we could have a much freer media, as they do in the United States. Mogg is an amazing character. He's an amazing creature. He can, he can spout such monumental bollocks as he did just there without cracking a smile. That takes some skill. ...funding mechanism of the BBC. We could have a much freer media... Like? ...as they do in the United States. <laughs> How could he say that without laughing? People are allowed to say what they think, and I think that would be much better rather than this pretense that the BBC is impartial. Which yeah, yeah. We could have a much freer media like they do in the United States where people are free to say what they think. And how has that worked out for democracy in the United States, Jacob? How has it worked out for plurality in the United States? It hasn't worked out very well because the networks the Conservative and the Liberal networks just put people on air, as GB News does, as uh, LBC does, with specific points of view, aggressive, agitating type men and women who scream their opinions out. And what does that create? Echo chambers. Of course it does. So viewers tend to gravitate towards the loud, obnoxious bastard or bitch who says exactly what they want to hear. That's how it goes. So don't give me this nonsense if we disband the BBC and scrap the licence fee. By the way, I... I would like to see the licence fee scrapped. I've never paid it myself, but I would like to see it scrapped. It is outrageous to, 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 to put a tax on people, to impose a tax on them, and to demand that they pay for television they do not want, or they might not want. So don't uh, think I'm sticking up for the licence fee. It's just ludicrous of Mog to say, let's have a media like they have in the United States. Of course, Mog knows damn well that is happening anyway. And I've talked about that many times on this programme and used many an example of how what was over there is now over here. Journalism is dead. Debate, intellectual or otherwise, is dead. And now we have echo chambers. GB News, LBC, Talk TV, echo chambers. That's all we have. Um, Moggy, you're mad. You're totally mad. I have long thought that the licence fee is a constraint on the BBC, that it stops it earning revenues by subscriptions on the iPlayer uh, or by taking advertising, uh, and it leads to a heavily regulated media. It's not heavily, heavily regulated. I agree with Mark. Scrap the licence fee, let the BBC compete with its competitors, let it compete properly on a level playing field, let it go and get advertising and sponsorship. Absolutely right. And then scrap this pretense of impartiality. When has the BBC ever been impartial? In, in my lifetime, it hasn't been impartial. Have a listen briefly to, to, what's her name? Her name has gone out of my head now. She presents the Women's Hour on BBC Radio 4. Ah, yeah, Emma Barnett. Let's, let's have a listen to BBC impartiality. It's a rare example on the BBC where we're allowed to just you know, say that the person who's saying the anti-vax message is, a, is is wrong. You know, we're allowed to say that because of the science. Do you what see what science? I'm saying? And, and We actually don't, as a matter of editorial policy, we don't debate with anti-vaxxers whether they're right yeah. or wrong. We actually don't yeah. do that. Whether they're right or wrong. And I had an email some years ago from a BBC journalist who is working elsewhere now, and he was very kind to send it to me, and we were able to break a big story, weren't we? The BBC sent a circular via email around all of its production departments about five years ago. It told them the science was settled on climate change and that when filling programmes with guests to talk about climate change, you don't, any longer, you, you, you don't need to go and get the scientist, regardless of how qualified he or she is, you don't need to get the scientist who disagrees 
with anthropogenic climate change models. You don't have to. The science is settled. Laughable. Does anybody think the BBC was impartial in March of 2020? What, three years ago? Three years ago was the BBC impartial when Witty, Tweedledum and Tweedledee and Van Tam and that shower of idiots came out at Downing Street and said we needed to lock the country down to flatten the curve for a virus that did very little to most people. Where was the BBC then? I mean, there were scientists screaming from the rooftop saying, this is crazy. This will do more harm than good. This is madness. We don't ordinarily do this when there's a pandemic. What did the BBC do? It, it ignored or actively worked to keep these guys off the air. And girls, lest I be accused of sexism. So give me that nonsense now about BBC impartiality. The story's not about Lineker. Lineker's a clown. You know, he's a clown. He lives in a London bubble. He's a footballer. It doesn't mean he's not intelligent. He has no clue about immigration. He doesn't have a clue what unchecked mass migration does to working people in any society. Because he's never experienced it. He might argue he has. He... He worked in his father's fruit and veg stall, didn't he, in Leicester when he was a younger man. This is about the the ludicrous, laughable idea that the BBC is impartial and it must be protected from guys like Gary Lineker. It isn't impartial. Go and look at the broadcasting around the Iraq war. Where was the dissent on the BBC? There was none. Zero. It's never been impartial. All that it's ever done is advance the agendas that we talk about on these programmes. Crazy stuff. A. Let's leave Lineker alone now. Jacob Rees-Mogg. We should be like the US. Yeah, let's have the free market running the media. Why not? Doesn't matter anyway. You know that, dear listener. Right now, it doesn't matter. Media's dead. It's been dead for years. Journalism is dead. Absolutely stone dead brown bread. This interests me. This uh, question time host, Fiona Bruce. She took over, didn't she, from Dimbleby. From David Dimbleby, Fiona Bruce, with her ginger hair on her. She also presents an antiques programme for the BBC also. Um, she says, does Bruce, that she will step back from her role as an ambassador for a domestic violence charity called Refuge. Why? Well, last Thursday, during Question Time, which she hosted, and if you don't know what the programme is, it's a panel show where politicians and sometimes celebrities and sometimes people who work for lobby groups and whatnot, they sit around a panel and they field questions from the studio audience, right? A very carefully selected studio audience. Of course, you'll not be surprised by that. And last week during the programme, Stanley Johnson, the, the father of the former Prime Minister Boris Johnson, his name came up to do with domestic violence. And Fiona Bruce has been accused of trivialising domestic violence during this discussion, and as a result, she has left her role as an ambassador for a domestic violence charity. Let's hear the exchange. And again, this really, this is really typical of the times we live in, where truth doesn't matter. Truth is an after, an afterthought. We are in a post-truth age now. We really are. Listen to this. You'll hear Yasmin. Alibe or Alibi Brown first, then you will hear Fiona Bruce. For a change, I'm not, I, I'm not blaming Boris Johnson or Stanley Johnson. Actually, Ken, 
He was a wife beater, Stanley Johnson, on record. Um, okay, let me just let me just interview. I'm not so the presenter, Fiona Bruce, interjects, right? No, I'm not disputing what you're saying, but just so everyone knows what this is referring to. So Stanley Johnson's uh, wife spoke to a journalist, Tom Bauer, and she said that Stanley Johnson had broken her nose and, and she had ended up in hospital as a result. Stanley Johnson has not commented publicly on that. Friends of his have said it did happen. It was a one-off. Yes, but it did happen. Anyway... What I think is it's not Stanley Johnson. And that was the end of the exchange. And Fiona Bruce was accused by many, including people like Carol Vorderman, formerly of Countdown, the numbers and the letters, right? Accusing her of trivialising or defending Stanley Johnson when she did no such thing. She acknowledged that Stanley Johnson's ex-wife, the mother of Boris Johnson, made allegations about him in a newspaper. It was The Guardian. She said uh, the broken nose. She said friends of his have said it was a one-off because he's never commented on it publicly. At no time whatsoever did Bruce condone it or attempt to trivialise the accusations against Johnson. But now she's leaving her role from uh, her role working with a charity. You might think, what's this all about, Richie? This is not that important. But it is. It is. It's a signpost, really, this isn't it, of, it's a microcosm of the macrocosm, really, of where things are going, where anything can be said about somebody, by anybody, and it doesn't have to be true or even remotely true, and it can result in that person having to give up a position or leave a job and make all manner of apologies when, in fact, they didn't do anything wrong in the first place. At no point did she trivialise domestic violence or violence against women. I don't like Fiona Bruce. She's a BBC presenter. Don't like any of them. BBC, Sky, ITV, ITN, Channel 4. Can't stand them for what they do. But um, she didn't condone, trivialise or try to minimise what uh, Stanley Johnson had done. But then she had to withdraw from her ambassadorial role with the charity Refuge. Crazy. She's another one who's not had the courage to say, no, no, I didn't do anything wrong, I'll carry on. Anywho, the time is 18 minutes past the hour. This is your Richie Allen Show. Live on richieallen.co.uk, Fab Radio 2 in Manchester. And, of course, we're on the TuneIn app too. You're listening to the saviour of independent media, Richie Allen. Now, don't forget, coming up in a few minutes' time, Professor Norman Fenton will be on the programme. You do not want to miss him. The newsletter is entitled, Where Are the Numbers.substack.com challenging the global COVID-19 narrative, exposing the use and abuse of statistics. I highly recommend you get onto that newsletter, whereearethenumbers.substack.com, and do share it around. It is run by Martin Neal and Norman Fenton, two professors who have written hundreds of scientific papers and numerous books on statistics, decision-making, risk and uncertainty systems and software engineering. This promises to be very interesting indeed. Does it not? I think it does. Your comments to richieallen.co.uk and uh, it's live comment at the top of the page. The paedophile Gary Glitter is in the news. He was uh, released from jail recently into a bail hostel, wasn't he? A number of news sources reporting today that he has been caught on camera trying to access the dark web. The guy's name is Paul Gad. He was trying to access the private browser DuckDuckGo and um, he 
was trying to use a, a, a Tor, which is another dark web browser. And on the dark web, of course, that's where people go to find all manner of disgusting things. Not just disgusting things. They go there to buy drugs and other things you can't have, guns and stuff. But child porn on the dark web. So he might be back in prison before, you know, it. Paul Gad. And the Madeleine McCann thing, I don't think anybody seriously believes that Julia Wendell, who's 21, is the missing Madeleine McCann. But the media keeps reporting on this. number of, um, again, networks today talking about this woman who has gone to California with, um, with a private detective and a medium called Dr. Fia Johansson. She's having DNA tests done in California. She believes she is, in fact, Madeleine McCann. Uh, the parents who adopted her completely denied this and say it's nonsense, but uh, it's interesting, I suppose, isn't it? Her family in Poland denied these claims, yeah. And this is really interesting. The Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, announced today that the police from now on will be barred from recording non-crime hate incidents just because somebody is offended. How seriously should we take this? What should we read into it? Braverman has endorsed new guidance which requires officers to prioritise freedom of speech over offensive language that some people might find upsetting. The Telegraph all over this. This new legislation, this new advice to police attempts, it's not legislation, it's basically an order. And it, it aims to reduce the number of non-crime hate incidents which have seen 120,000 people recorded in the past five years, (laughs) including one poor Egypt who ended up on a police file because he whistled the theme tune to Bob the Builder at his neighbour. His neighbour rang the police and said that he was racially abused. The police recorded it. (laughs) It's down there in black and white. It's on your permanent record. Crazy stuff. And uh, this, excuse me, Suella Braverman says, I've been deeply concerned about reports of the police wrongly getting involved in lawful debate in this country. We have been clear that in recording so-called non-crime hate incidents, officers must always have freedom of expression at the forefront of their minds. So again, this isn't legislation, it's advice, it's a new... Well, it's orders. It's not advice. It's an order. It's a code. It will ensure the police, says Braverman, are prioritising their efforts where it's really needed and focusing on tackling serious crimes such as burglary, violent offences, rape and other sexual offences. Well, Braverman. Yes, right. Yeah. Do get in touch with me, by the way, because this has happened to so many people. It might have happened to you or someone you know. Does... Has it happened to you or someone you know? Have they been reported for name-calling or for whistling or anything pathetic like that? And have they had a visit by the old Bill? I'd love to hear from you. RichieAllen.co.uk Comment live. That's the best way to reach me. I am on Twitter as well. It's at BBGRichie on Twitter. I will be checking it periodically, but um, mostly I'll be on uh, the website. Craig has been in touch. All the fuss about what Lineker said, and no one has seen fit to ask him to define Nazi. I, I don't think he used the term Nazi, Craig. He, he referred to 1930s Germany. But yes, I suppose by, by, by any logic, he did, he did mean Nazi. After all, says Craig, it was at one time to th- the abbreviated name of Ignazi. 
the old German version of Ignatius. It was a derogatory term for uneducated peasant, and it was for a short time the official name of the NSDAP, and it could be applied to the ardent followers of Ignatius Loyola. And how many dutiful citizens of our country are quite happy to report their fellow citizens for breaching some minor law or other, even though the breach is not hurting them? As the name Anne Frank comes to mind, but few want to see this comparison. Well, plenty of people, seemingly, during March of 2020 and April and May of 2020, Craig, as you well know, it seems that plenty of people were quite happy to pick up the phone, call their local police station and report their neighbours for having more people around than the guidelines had, you know, suggested was, was appropriate. Yeah, curtain twitchers. There was a lot of that going on. Wasn't there, Craig, back in 2020? Jenny says, no such thing as settled science. Science is theories and scientific thinking changes all the time as new knowledge emerges. Yes, absolutely. Angela couldn't be less interested in Lineker. Me too, Angela. But the notion that the BBC is impartial, or, or even despite a couple of missteps every now and then, you know, the BBC is largely impartial. Oh, sure, it gets it wrong every now and then. Sure, Laura Kunzberg, you know, will get it wrong. She'll go soft on the Tories. But, you know, that's a misstep. Ordinarily, the BBC is, is impartial. That's a nonsense. As long as I can remember, it hasn't been impartial and is as quick to shut down debate as any other. Look, I've played a thousand clips on monologues like this going back the last few years where breakfast call-in shows on the BBC have booted people off the air. Like the nurse, whose name escapes me, Marie, I think her name was, who phoned Nicky Campbell's show a couple of weeks back on BBC Radio 5 Live. Campbell was away, somebody else was presenting it, and the nurse said, one in 800 people have been seriously affected, badly affected by, adversely affected by a Covid jab. They couldn't get her off the air quick enough. That's what the BBC does. So we can't have that. Gary Lineker can say whatever he wants. Wherever he wants, it doesn't bother me at all. Peter says, I agree on one point from Jacob Rees-Mogg. That is, let's get rid of the TV tax or the licence fee. I've never paid it, nor will I ever. It's bad enough being lied to by the BBC, but to add insult to injury, how can they expect people to pay for the privilege of being lied to? That's a blooming good point. That, Peter... Yes, I've never had a licence, nor did I ever have a television licence in Ireland. No, I didn't. And it's a very, it's not a famous story, but amongst my friends back home, um, they, they would know this story. I lived in O'Brien Street in Waterford. And about six months before we left to go and live in the UK in 2003, um, a really thick looking, by thick I mean stupid looking, guard, male guard, probably in his 60s, knocked on the door. I, the future misses. Hadn't um, been living with me very long, maybe eight or nine months, and she was in the living room. And this guy came to me and he said, you don't have a television licence. I said, it's none of your business what I do and what I don't have. And he said, well, there's been a, a summons, there's been a judgment or something. He said, I'm coming back tomorrow, and if you can't prove that you do have a television licence, this is the Irish one, I'll be coming back and we'll take you to Cork Prison. True story. And I said, really? Well, I said, you better come back mob-handed. He said, what do you mean? He was a real aggressive piece of crap, you know. He said, he said, what? I said, well, you better come back mob-handed. I said, you better bring some guys with you. 
Because if you turn up tomorrow with anybody and attempt to take me to Cork Prison, someone's going to get badly hurt and it's not going to be me. He said, you need to find a few things out about people before you start threatening them. So anyway, I went back in. That was all bravado, right? So I went back into the living room and um, El Frogo Tremendo said, what are you going to do in the morning? I said, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I said, I'll have to do something if they turn up. But they never turned up the following day. And we stayed in Ireland for another, quite quite a few months after that, before we eventually migrated to, uh, to Sosnock, to England. And I never heard another word about it. Strange, isn't it? Because they could have turned up. I mean, what, what could I do? One guy on his own, you know. I was basically braving it out, really. But uh, no, they never turned up. And I wonder, is there something in that, you know, about standing up to tyrants, to idiots, just tell them, you're not going to get anywhere with me anyway. Okay, Pietro says, consider yourself lucky, Richie. You only had to walk towards Trafford. I travelled from Milton Keynes to endure United's performance. That's the trip, that. In fact, I was sitting alongside two guys from London who travelled up. They were Mancunians living in London and they'd come up to watch that turgid nonsense at Old Trafford. Ardell says, Richie, on Lineker, I thought anyone mentioning Nazi Germany was labelled an anti-Semite these days. Well, various journalists working for the Jewish Chronicle, then you had people who represent the boards of deputies of British Jews, they had their say on social media and said it trivialises the Holocaust, but he got off fairly lightly, Lineker. You could argue it's uh, 29 minutes past the hour. Okie doke then. Right, I'm going to take some music now. When I come back, we will be joined by Professor Norman Fenton. If there's anything you'd like to contribute, again, do it through the website richieallen.co.uk. Comment live on the menu bar. Or you can drop me a tweet. I will check the tweets. It's at BBG Richie. Twitter handle is at BBG Richie. Would you like to hear some simple minds this Monday? Why not? This is someone somewhere in summertime. That is a simple minds. Someone somewhere in summertime on the Richie Allen Show. 27 minutes to the top of the hour. Huge interest in my guest, unsurprisingly. Before we welcome Professor Norman Fenton to the programme, let me do this. If I don't do this, there will be murder. Uh, hi to Jade Martin. Hi, Jade, and thanks for your message. It's lovely to hear from you. She says, Richie, would you, would you mention my mum and dad today, Pat and Peter Martin? It is their 52nd wedding anniversary today. Wow. Uh, it's my mum's birthday on St. Patrick's Day on the 17th and dad's on the 20th of March. Send all our love to Pat and Peter from Jade and Sco, Robin, Peter, Bess, Keelan and Aaron. 52 years married today, Pat and Peter Martin. Congratulations and have a fantastic week. And of course, St. Patrick's Day this coming Friday. I think the parade either was this weekend here in the Northwest or maybe... It's um, Saturday, the day after. I'll have to double-check that. Anyway, to more important matters. As I've already mentioned, there is a very important newsletter. It is known as wherearethenumbers.substack.com wherearethenumbers.substack.com I tell you to check it out, but many of you reached out to me to ask me to feature it on the programme because of the amazing work it's doing. It's the brainchild of two academic professors, Professor Norman Fenton, who you'll meet in a moment, and Professor Martin Neal. Between them, they've put together hundreds of scientific papers peer-reviewed, books on statistics, decision-making, risk and everything else. Um, I mentioned at the top of the show, Professor Norman Fenton himself is incredibly qualified 
qualified. He is a retired professor of uh, risk, emeritus professor of risk at Queen Mary University. He's a mathematician. He's published seven books. His work covers multiple domains and he has been an expert witness in major criminal and civil cases. So let's have a chat then about the statistics around COVID-19. It's lethality, it's mortality. Um, Lockdown, let's have a a chat about that was lockdown worse than was the cure worse than than the disease as they called it itself COVID-19 what about the claims around the uh, vaccines the mRNA vaccines and the safety or otherwise of those vaccines let's welcome to the program Professor Norman Fenton Norman welcome to the show how are you um, good, thanks. Can you hear me okay? Oh, you sound great, thanks. It's great these days, Norman. This technology we have, it's so fantastic compared to 20 years ago when I started in radio. You couldn't yeah. imagine we could do something like this and do it so easily. Listen, you're welcome and you're very kind to give us your time. I know you're incredibly busy. Let's, um, where do we start? So, well, actually, go ahead. I, you were talking about Gary Lineker before, because there's a kind of like a link into that in, in this whole kind of misinformation and the, the way that the the media kind of like portrays, you know, creates a particular narrative, right? Because Gary Lineker, right, he claims that he is fighting the establishment, it doesn't he? But his, his woke views are actually totally aligned with the entire sort of globalist agenda. Yeah. It's aligned with the whole of academia, all the major corporations, the entire entertainment industry, the entire media elite. And, and the irony, and this is the irony, is he actually agrees with the BBC on almost everything. On almost everything. And, and the only reason, I'll tell you, the only reason the BBC felt they had to do something in this case was because he used that Nazi comparison. And even the BBC realised it would be really hypocritical of them not to give him a little slap because of their own hysterical reaction when Andrew Bridgen, in the context of the, um, the vaccine safety, made that much more relevant actual anal- analogy, quoting um, uh, what well, he claims to be an Israeli academic about the, uh, about the Holocaust. So that's, that's the only reason why they felt they had to do it. Even they saw the hypo- would have seen the hypocrisy of not doing something. That's a really uh, good point. And also, just compare the support from all these sort of main, you know, these sort of main sports media pundits for Gary Lineker with the total contempt and lack of support they showed with Matt Letizier when he was sacked from Sky and actually now speaks out, you know, on the kind of issues that, that, that I'm speaking out again. He gets no support whatsoever from any of those guys for his lack of work opportunities. Yeah, Ian Wright, of course, who played for Arsenal and Crystal Palace yeah. in England, he's been challenged about this online, saying, where was your solidarity with um, your former peer, uh, Matt Letizia, as you articulated there, Norman? And he's gone very silent on that, Ian Wright. Nothing to say. Not right. Yeah, too right has gone silent because they actually showed clips of the interview he did at the time after uh, Matt's uh, sacking. And he was he was really dismissive, saying something about old white guys, blah, Didn't blah, blah. Yeah. No, no surprising he's quiet now. The hypocrisy is it's just unbelievable. But it's let's face it, it's what we've been seeing right throughout the last three years and beyond, of course. And, and I'm an old trade unionist. We're not going to talk about migration, of course not. We've, we've, um, we're, we're going to talk about something entirely different. But as an old, I, I shouldn't say old trade, trade I, you know, I believe in the workers' rights to, to, to bargain and to, to withdraw their labour if there's a good reason to do so. But there isn't a single, I don't know, there isn't a single 
um, entity, person, group, organisation in the country anymore speaking up for working people when it comes to migration. I remember trade unionists many years ago arguing that, you know, having an open doors migration policy would hurt people, you know, would hurt the, the not the indigenous people, but would hurt the natives of this country if we did this. And now those who claim to be socialists, and they're not really, they're social democrats, a totally different thing, um, they're all for open door migration policies as well, while services are being destroyed, Norman. It's insane. Exactly. And they also, those same groups who should have been standing up you know, for the you know for the working the working class who were the most adversely affected by the lockdowns, they were the ones who wanted to lock us down. You know, harder and yeah. harder and faster. And they were the ones. You know, they also were the ones who were supposed to be standing up for free speech. You know, the unions, the academics, all these people. And yet they were the ones, literally at the forefront of 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 pushing the government into further restrictions against our civil liberties. I mean, everything about these last three years is just, it's, it's, it's mad. It's upside down. Yeah, and, and we'll talk more about that as time goes on. So where are the numbers? Substack.com. You're listening to Professor Norman Fenton. That's um, the brainchild of Norman and Martin Neal, two professors now. Because of your background, because of your um, because of your skill set, you know your years in academia, statistics, risk, all of that. When they said in March 2020, let's lock down to flatten the curve. Were you Norman and Martin and maybe others like you? Were you immediately suspicious? Were you thinking, right, let's have a look at these numbers? Even then, we we were. Um, suspicious as soon as they started quoting what we believe were these ag- exaggerated uh, infection fatality rates. I, they were talking about we're talking about what's the probability that someone who gets infected with COVID is going to die, and they were they were making out and people were assuming people. In fact, they did sort of surveys at the time. People were thinking it was like fifty percent chance you're going to die if you get this virus, and and we knew that 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 wasn't true. And even though and it was obviously not true because the figures at the time were in the UK. They were based on primarily they were the only people they were testing for COVID. I mean, we'll talk about the accuracy of the test, but the only people they were testing, of course, for COVID were people who were already hospitalised and extremely ill with it. So obviously, a much higher proportion of those are going to die, right, because they're already critically in hospital with it. But that doesn't reflect the true probability that you're going to die if you've got this virus. And as we now know, for all but the extremely elderly, the probability you're going to die if you get this virus is, is extremely low. And we were, funnily enough, one of the first, we were one of the first to publish a paper actually soon after the start. I think it was published in May, but we were working on it right from the beginning, which was exposing these, these uh, exaggerated um, you know, fatality rates. And we were actually saying then that, that it was likely that the although the uh, the death rates were highly inflated, the actual infection rates, I how many people actually have this thing, is probably understated. We thought probably a lot of lot did have it and, and nothing much was happening to them. Right? They weren't getting seriously ill with it. And we at the time, uh, and, our, and it was we were, because we were assuming that the PCR tests were kind of some kind of accurate test, we were suggesting if you wanted to find out how many people really have it, you know, you need to do sort of more random testing. That was, in hindsight, that was a, that was a, that was a really bad uh, mistake. But what really, so we were already onto this, but at that point, nothing we were saying was seriously challenging the kind of like the official narrative. And we even published and put online a personalized COVID risk assessment. So we were very, you know, we were into the idea that this was something, 
this was something extremely serious. It needed to be monitored. We were kind of unhappy a bit about the way the government was presenting the data, but we weren't seriously challenging it. So at that point, which was up until about uh, June of 2020, we were still getting stuff published in peer-reviewed journals about it. I mean, we started to... We started to question things because I think our last paper that we did get published was one which said that the, um, the track and trace system was definitely not going to work. We'd, 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 we'd kind of like suss that one out. And thereafter, we never had, never had, a, never had a paper, I mean, nothing in a peer-reviewed journal since then because I, we started to call out the big problem was about this. They start when they start doing mass testing of asymptomatic people, starting in sort of uh, summer and going in, especially really, really ratcheting it up into the autumn of 2020. And that's when everything became clear that the whole thing was essentially a scam. So, Norman, that- you when they and thank you for reminding us of this. I, I don't often think about this. This this uh, period when they said we need to do massive, as you said, testing of asymptomatic people, people with nothing wrong with them. We need yep. to start testing them. Why was that a big red flag at the time for you? For the simple reason that we were seeing that well, I already knew by then about the inaccuracy of the PCR test, and we already knew because of the the actual the type of probability that we do it's called this Bayesian stuff that was especially well applied to determine how accurate those tests actually are and we determined that if a if an asymptomatic person was testing positive on that PCR test it was actually very unlikely that they had the virus whereas the government was putting out this message if you remember the time one in three people with covid had no symptoms and saw a danger well, that was all a scam because when they said one in three people with COVID have no symptoms, what they really meant is that one in three people who test positive for COVID have no symptoms. And we already knew that most of those people didn't actually have COVID. So the whole thing led to this, you know, this, it was part of that fear tactic. But much more importantly, it was driving up the case numbers. You were seeing this exponential increase in COVID case numbers starting in late summer of 2020. But of course, that was mainly due to the fact that they were just testing a whole load of asymptomatic people and you were getting a lot of false positives or people who were very, very mildly or uh, at best. And therefore, this whole this whole but kind of that massive second wave, which they claim was so much bigger than the first wave, right, and which justified the second lockdown and which they told us was essentially the only way the only way out of that lockdown was going to be through the vaccine, right? It was all driven by these exaggerated case numbers that anybody testing positive was was a was a COVID case. Now, if you remember, also talking about who were they testing, right? The lock the first lockdown kind of like was eased, if you remember, in that, that autumn. So all the school kids suddenly went were going back to work. A lot of workers were going back to yeah. work, and they was they were they were saying, well, in order to come back, we've got to test. You've got to do this testing. You're going to have to do this, this testing every day, right, just to get to get there. So all of these people were being tested. Nothing wrong with them. It was just to get to work or to get to school or whatever. Inevitably, you get the mass increase in the numbers. There was, a, there was, an, there was a, an increased wave, a genuine wave, but a small wave, much smaller than the first that, that autumn and winter. Nothing like necessary to justify the, you know, the next lockdown and the idea that only the vaccine could get people out of this. That's that's a massive claim, this, and I, I I've got to 
for people listening to this who who, who might disagree with um, Professor Fenton with with uh, with Norman, they'll say, um, "Where's the proof of that? Where's the proof that they exaggerated the second wave as a way to convince people they needed to, to take a jab?" Now, I'm not saying I'm not sympathetic to your point of view. Listeners to this show will know that I am. But for those who are skeptical and they say, "Ah, come on, Norman," I mean, right, I'll how could they get you, away I'll with give that? You some- Go on. I'll give you I'll give you some I'll give you some data. I mean, I wasn't I didn't want to get sort of too technical on this, but that that was the time when that autumn, in fact, everybody who was registered with a GP in November of 2020 got a text from the NHS which said that eight out of ten people currently hospitalized with COVID are um, are not fully vaccinated. Right. Right. And you got these, and you were also seeing these reports at the time. It was, it was a massive push about the fact that, you know, ninety percent in people of people in hospital with COVID, uh, you know, or ninety percent of people dying with COVID now are, are unvaccinated. There was a massive push on this idea that. Um, oh, sorry, I'm, I'm, big, I'm going. I'm jumping ahead. Jumping ahead. You're jumping months ahead, but I get you. Year. I get sorry. you. Yeah. Oh, to, to the actual COVID. Sorry, take that back. 2020. Right. We know from the data. Um, from freedom of information requests about that year and the following year in terms of how many people actually died from COVID rather than with COVID. We know the numbers are very low. So, for example, freedom of information request, access request, asking for the information on COVID deaths for the whole of the first two years, right? January 2020 up until the end of 2021, there were, um, in England... There were 95,000 deaths in hospitals, which were classified as COVID deaths, right? But only less than 5% of those weren't people who already didn't have one, at least one major underlying comorbidity. And what's more, we know that a lot of those people never went into hospital with COVID. They actually were, they got COVID after hospitalization. Also, a lot of those going into hospital actually went into hospital for a different a different reason, but because you had to test, you had to get a PCR test tested, to get yeah. into hospital. If you recorded as positive, fourteen up to fourteen days before going into hospital, and any time afterwards in hospital, you were classified as a COVID case. So, less than five percent of those hospitalizations, and of course, it same applies to deaths. We know that in the first two years, there were 131,000 deaths, England and Wales, classified as COVID. Less than five percent of those were. With, with people who didn't have some existing other major comorbidity, at least one other major comor- comorbidity. And that's for children. Three, only three in the whole of the first two years died from, you know, classified as dying from COVID who didn't have some existing major uh, comorbidity. And Norman, didn't one of the broadsheets in autumn 2020 try to blow the whistle on this? And I think they might have been using your data, either the Times or the Telegraph ran a significant story on the Sunday edition saying that the way deaths were being counted was um, unscientific to say the least. This was in autumn 2020. Yeah, I'm, we knew it. They were counting. Yeah. Look, it's not just the, the... Again, it's all driven by this PCR test. Anybody, remember, anybody in the UK... I mean, this, they were doing this worldwide, of course. Anybody in the UK who died within 28 days of a positive PCR test for whatever reason was classified as a COVID death on those, you know, on those those government um, dashboards, the ones that were shown every night on the TV screens. 
Do we know who was behind? That's how they were, and, and that was known. There's no controversy about this. Nobody denies this. It's still, if you go to the yeah. uh, government's COVID um, dashboard now, you'll still see that there. It's, it says very clearly, diet deaths are dying within 28 within days. Within 28 days. PCR test. Norman, do we? It doesn't even have to be, you don't have to be symptomatic. It's, it's, yeah. it's dying 28 days of a of a PCR test or having symptoms of COVID. Yeah, we know. We learned, we heard about a gentleman who fell off a ladder and um, his, his son got in touch with the programme. He was listed as a COVID death because he had tested positive and there was nothing wrong with him. Do we have any idea at this stage who was responsible for that particular policy? Is there a name? Have we been able to determine which man or woman decided how we would count COVID deaths? Or is that... No, no, no but it's interesting that, yeah. again, as with so many other aspects of the whole um, COVID narrative, the same definitions were adopted all over the world at the same time. Lockstep. I mean, actually in states it was even worse. I think they went up to 56 days in some states. But, yeah, but it's basically, yeah, that lockstep, everyone was doing that. Everyone was, yeah, defining cases by this positive PCR test, which we now know is extremely unreliable. So I, I don't think... You know, it'd be difficult to pin it down to a certain, you know, to one person. I mean, let's, if you think about the WhatsApp, that's whole WhatsApp fiasco, right? What they're trying to do there is they're trying to show that all of that sort of government ineptitude around decision making, right? They're trying to kind of like, um, you know, sort of set up Hancock as he's the, sort of the designated fall guy to take the, to take the flack for all that, basically. So they're, they're trying to sort of pin the blame kind of on him and, and maybe some unnamed you know, maybe some you know unnamed civil servants, right? And of course, he's been—he's got very well paid for being, I, I believe, for being you know set up as a full guy. I mean, he got his whatever it was—was was it three hundred thousand pounds for appearing on that you know celebrity? Yeah, whatever, he did well. Yeah, absolutely. Jungle, whatever. But um, you know, but so there's 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 that aspect of it. They're really—it's very difficult to pin. I don't think you can pin it on anybody. But if you remember. Again, in fe- when was it? Yeah, February. I think it was either February or very early March of 2020. The um, the spy group, you know, part of Sage, the 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 people who are responsible for basically the psychology, the psyops that was, you know, the psychology people who who wanted to create. You remember, they wanted to create fear. more fear. They wanted yeah. to make people really fearful of COVID. And therefore, the bus shelter ads. Do you remember those bus shelter ads with the person who looked like a zombie on the bed with the with the yeah, yellow eyes and exactly. all that? Exactly, all all of yeah. that stuff. And they were yeah. they were quite open. These people were quite open about it, right? I mean, what what is actually annoying me about this, incidentally, that whole WhatsApp stuff is actually. It's being spun as evidence that we should have locked down sooner and harder. That actually a lot of people actually are really believing that. Did you see that there was a YouGov poll last week which showed that the majority of people still believe that we should have locked down sooner and harder? So if anything, that WhatsApp, you know, the WhatsApp uh, messages are kind of like creating this, you know, a cementing of a, of a completely flawed, you know, of a completely flawed idea. And... Um, you know the, the things that they should be looking at, that you know you, that are being completely covered up. Maybe um, what's her name, Oakshot, is going to reveal this stuff. But but by the sounds of what she's kind of like been saying on Twitter, I doubt that they are. They've not said anything about the catas- the really catastrophic errors, like you know what was essentially the the culling of the elderly in 2020 with the with this sort of special nice death protocol. You know the use of uh, you know failing to treat. 
people with pneumonia resulting from COVID and then using midazolam and all that sort of stuff effectively to put, you know, put them on do not resuscitate end of life protocols. And of course, also the failure of the vaccines, right? Especially the AstraZeneca vaccine. Where's that? Why has that not come out in any of these WhatsApp messages? But here's one as well, because this relates right back to that time and about how they were getting this advice, coming back to what you just asked me, right? Why was a conservative government delegating power to essentially an unelected group of what were essentially Marxist academics, namely SAGE, who were all tuned in to that kind of WFU had agenda 2030, which was basically applying these, what can only be described as kind of like Marxist control techniques over the population. They were all tuned into that. They wanted that kind of thing to happen. I mean, remember, people know about um, one of the uh, academics on that. That was like Susan Susan Mickey, who is a, a self-professed you know, self communist, communist right? <laughs> yeah, right? But I can tell you, I can tell you, right? I won't, know, I won't name names, but... A lot of those other academics on SAGE and certainly independent SAGE have very, very similar um, political viewpoints. And I understand these people because, you know, I come, I mean, <laughs> I, I, not a lot of people know this, but I was sort of brought up in the sort of international socialist sort of movement. And I was kind of active, you know, there. And I kind of like, I saw, I, I realized, you know, when I was maybe in my sort of early 30s, just how kind of like fraudulent and you know, what a kind of mind control technique and the kind of, you know, psyops tactics they were using there to sort of, you know, convince people of this of this ideology. And I kind of eventually saw through it, which is why I'm kind of particularly attuned into into where it's happening now. I can see I can see these things. I know how they play the game. I want to just do um, something very quickly. I've got a little clip here. You've just reminded me. Um, before I do that, though, you are listening to Professor Norman Fenton. Um, retired Queen Mary University uh, professor in risk, a mathematician, a qualified mathematician. He's testified in major criminal and civil cases, written books, peer-reviewed articles in the hundreds on statistics. This is really important. Um, Norman, listen to this. You'll have heard this a thousand times, but our listeners might need to be reminded of it. I still don't understand this. You see, in the WhatsApp messages, at times it appears that Chris Whitty is doing the right thing. That's England's chief medical officer. You know, he's telling Hancock, you know, test everybody going, going into the care homes. He, he, he seems to repeat a couple of times in these WhatsApp messages that COVID is fairly harmless to most people. I don't understand this guy, Whitty. Listen to this clip taken, um, Whitty in Downing Street in mid-2020. It's so important, this. To balance two things. The seriousness of this virus as an epidemic, and it clearly is a very serious epidemic, but equally the fact that actually the great majority of people will not die from this. And I'll just repeat something I said right at the beginning because I think it's worth reinforcing. Most people, are, well, a significant proportion of people will not get this virus at all at any point in the epidemic, which is going to go on for a long period of time. Of those who do, some of them will get the virus without even knowing it. They will have the virus with no symptoms at all, asymptomatic carriage, and we know that happens. Of those who get symptoms, the great majority, probably 80%, will have a mild or moderate disease, might be bad enough for them to have to go bed to bed for a few days, not bad enough for them to have to go to the doctor. An unfortunate minority will have to go as far as hospital, but the majority of those will just need oxygen and will then leave hospital. And then a minority of those 
will end up having to go to severe uh, end critical care, and some of those, sadly, will die. But that's a minority. It's 1% it's or possibly even less than 1% overall. And even in the highest risk group, uh, this is significantly less than 20%, i.e. the great majority of people, even the very highest groups, if they catch this virus, will not die. Norman, I know publicans back home in Ireland who'd love to be able to water down their beer the way he watered down COVID there. Yeah. That's astonishing yeah. to listen back to that. What happened? I mean, even in some of these WhatsApp messages, he was a bit reticent when they mentioned Israel. Uh, I think your man was involved, wasn't he? Dominic Cummings. He said Israel is going to roll out a vaccine. And even then, Whitty seemed to say the risk isn't great enough from COVID to warrant them um, rushing out a vaccine. Who is this guy, Chris Whitty? Do we know? I know, I know, and it's interesting because, as you say, that was that was probably around about June two thousand and twenty. Yeah, wasn't that, yeah. That interview, and that's the thing. It was then. There's something changed. They, they, in fact, there were almost actually no COVID deaths in that that summer, actually, as it so happens. But then suddenly they decided, right, we're going to ease the lockdown. And as I said, they started this mass asymptomatic testing. And that was what created this whole narrative thereafter about the need for the second lockdown. And the only way out of it is the vaccine. It's why, that's why I'm, I'm beginning to believe that this, that, that the, a mandated vaccine or something close to a mandated vaccine was always the objective here. Is that Occam's razor kicking in? <laughs> Probably, yeah, because it's difficult to um, explain why it was given the real data, and they must have had access to a lot of this real data. They knew by then that, that essentially anybody, you know, anybody under, under sort of 80 wasn't going to die even if they got this. You know, even if they got this illness and a lot, incidentally, a lot of those who did die in that first wave, right, they they could have been saved. This is the thing. As I say, it was that where you, you know, this whole thing that's coming out now is what's called this iatrogenesis theory that that basically a lot of those who were who died in that first wave could have actually been saved if given, you know, early treatment. And if not put on these stupid ventilators and not given this, you know, these put on these sort of end of life, unnecessary, you know, end of life protocols. I mean, that, you know, that night, those nice guidelines, it was the NG163, yeah. which are, of course, quietly removed. They tried to they tried to erase them from the uh, Internet, but but you can actually still see them. I mean, it's terrible. They were saying, I mean, I'm, I'm just looking at what it, what it says now. Um, it was saying, you know, identify um, and treat reversible causes, um, but consider um, consider this end of life treatment basically for people who have moderate to severe breathlessness and are distressed. You know, and it's it's, it's absolutely incredible. I mean, they were they were giving this they were giving this midazolam. This you know, it was it was a combination. I don't know, midazolam, what it's called, halopropidol, um, levamprosine, but all of these things effectively, you know, uh, are it's essentially the sort of things that you, you do give, you know, for people in serious distress, but not, you know, it, it's not going to help them recover from, you know, from the, the, the condition they had. It's going to it's going to basically uh, quicken their death. And, and, and on, seen, on yeah. that, the former health secretary, Matt Hancock. Now, I've interviewed Jackie Devoy on this programme, going back to when she made a documentary about this, A Good Death. We, we, we won't dwell totally on this, we'll just, 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 just for a couple of seconds. For context, for listeners who don't understand, um, when, at the outset of this, Hancock ordered, 
or his department did, an enormous amount of midazolam. And Hancock is on the record as talking about giving people a good death. And this despite what we heard Chris Whitty say a few minutes ago, namely that not very many people at all were likely to die from COVID. So why would you want to order a, a huge quantity of, of this drug in the context of giving people a good death? And all I would say on that, I'm not a doctor, I know nothing about this stuff. That has to be investigated and he has to be questioned on that. And Because that could be one of the biggest stories of all time, Norman, right? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And of course, it wasn't it wasn't just in this country. I mean, there's there's pretty good evidence that, you know, where the first in Europe, the whole big scare came you know, in Lombardy and Italy in that in February. We believe there's, there's plenty of evidence that a similar similar protocol, similar kind of like death protocols and in, inappropriate treatment of people with the virus led to that, that massive number of excess deaths then. So it's 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 not just the UK. Again, the UK was following was was following others here, but certainly, um, well, I don't. Again, I don't like the idea of pinning everything on Hancock. I think he's, uh, you know, contemptible person. But but there are others who would have made sure you know, would have you know, been party party yeah. to that decision to to effectively, as you say, um, encourage this this good death philosophy. Can I just say this, right? I've got, again, I've got to do this because I'm getting some of these messages from people and I like to be objective. Well, I don't. I try, but I fail often, but I I do my best. There are people sending messages and they're saying, Richie, as qualified as Norman and and his colleagues are obviously qualified and they must be listened to. Of course, this is very important. We'll talk about that in a few minutes as well, the censorship. The idea that... um, they exaggerated the threat of a novel coronavirus, um, falsified death numbers and, you know, inflated case numbers, and may have even played fast and loose with the lives of senior citizens, giving them drugs they didn't need, all to get us used to taking mandated vaccines, is like the plot from a James Bond movie. That's what some people are saying. It Could, could it possibly, possibly be this? Because if that is the case... Well, then life as we knew it before the COVID thing, well, that's upside down now, Norman, because we're living in some sort of dystopian lunatic asylum. That's what some people are saying, like to, to, to add those figures well, together, to join those it's dots. Not, yeah. It's not surprising that reasonable people, you know, who yeah. you know, been brought up to believe that, you know, governments, you know, would never do anything to harm their own people. Why, why wouldn't they believe that? You know, so I, I'm completely sympathetic to that. I mean, I'm, I'm shocked at things that we're finding out. That we're increasingly finding out new things, and in particular about that, I say going back to, you know, creating that narrative of the need, you know, that only the virus can get it, you know, get get us there, with that, you know, as I say, going on back on, on again to that that whole ramping up of the, um, I'd call it a sort of a mythology about that second wave, because, you know, you are going to get, you know, for any novel sort of uh, coronavirus you are going to get a winter, a bit of a winter surge. And there was a little bit, nothing like us in terms of real excess deaths like the first one. Um, but the fact that they were going overboard, you know, to, to, to create this, this again, the fear that, that this was, you know, again, it's everybody's going to be, you know, they recreated the fear in that winter of 2000, just prior to the introduction of the vaccination, that um, the, the, that this was, again, so serious, we hadn't got over it. It, it's back now and it's back for good. And the and clearly the only way out is, is the vaccine. I mean, that's that's how it looks to me. It, it looks at, that the narrative was very much at that point all sh- pointing towards 
the this this idea about the the need for the vaccine. Let me because I've got some questions now coming in from our listeners. You are listening to Professor Norman Fenton. Please, if you haven't before, because all of the evidence that that Norman has cited, it's all available at whereresthenumbers.substack.com. Whereresthenumbers.substack.com. You can follow Norman on Twitter too. If you look for Professor Norman Fenton, you will find him immediately on Twitter. So do follow him because he tweets daily. All the evidence, whereresthenumbers.substack.com. Before I ask you about what, what you've learned as an expert, a certifiable expert in statistics and mathematics about, and I'm saying that not to build you up, but I want people listening to this who are sceptical. This is not a crank. This is, this is a peer-reviewed expert statistician who has testified in major trials in this country. And his character is above reproach, right? So that's why he's on the programme today. It's great to have him on. Um, so before we go to um, vaccines... What about uh, excess death numbers for, say, 2018, 2019, 2020, 2021? Can you settle an argument for me? Because some of my listeners, they believe that in the COVID years, like 2020, 2021 in particular, that excess death figures were about average for the five-year period. Help us out. Is that right or wrong? Uh, no, it's probably not right. Now, I, I do I do have reservations about the use of excess deaths, and I think that a lot of people who've been challenging the narrative and who've been, let's say, uh, investigating the potent, the possibility that um, that the vaccines are causing massive numbers of excess deaths, etc. I think they've maybe exaggerated the role of uh, excess deaths. Right? I think that in 2020 there were um, there certainly were excess deaths, and and those did coincide with that first major wave. I think that in 2000, since 2000 and you know since the middle of 2021, and actually ongoing now, we are seeing excess deaths, right? Not in, I mean, in, in quite significant numbers. Of course, there are many reasons, possible reasons for that. I have my own. Um, possible explanations, and it doesn't. It certainly doesn't exclude um, uh, vaccination injuries. But we've also got the, you know, the impact of lockdown and uh, lockdowns and stuff like that. But it's not. I don't because there are so many confounding factors which can contribute to excess deaths. It's it's almost impossible to to pinpoint what is is really driving this. But to answer that question, I, I, I look the. The, the mortality rate in 2020, which was the main COVID year, the, the people who said, "Oh, it's no, not much different to previous years," they're right in a they're right in a sense because if you look at if you go back to 2000 all the way back for the last 20 years, then I think 2020 ranks only about something like the sixth or seventh highest mortality rate. Okay, but in terms of the more recent, but what that doesn't necessarily take account of is the fact that up until 2020, the mortality rates were slightly decreasing year on year, right? People tending to live longer. So there was an uptick. There was an uptick in 2020. So it's it's wrong to say there wasn't any evidence that something happened in 2020. So I don't buy into that. Something did happen. It was it was whatever you know whatever um, COVID was. It was whether it was whether it was the you know, the virus itself or the or the response to the virus there were there were excess deaths no doubt about it fair enough let's look at the time already it's 10 minutes past the year my god this is flying and l- let me just read three or four quick comments and then we'll talk about 
the vaccines. Um, which um, look, this, this particular show, Norman, we 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 have a reach, and for months and months and months, I've been hearing from from people. And they've come on the show to speak, some of them. Others have sent emails in. No reason to think they're lying. But they've talked about significant um, injuries or worse um, shortly after COVID uh, vaccines. And I've got to say, my, my better half, uh, Caroline, Caroline, was a French woman. Her mum had a pretty significant um, injury after having her second jab. I know people in Salford um, who never heard of programmes like this, who, who had serious problems after jabs. We'll talk about that in a moment. Um, Faisal asks, has Norman looked into the suicide figures during the pandemic at all? That's a bloody good question. I imagine you, you've had so much to look into. Maybe you haven't had the time to look into suicide, but was it significant, Norman? Suicide? I, I believe it was, but it, but but I wouldn't... It's not something I've looked at in detail. I know that colleagues of mine looked looked into it and there was, there was a significant rise. There was a significant rise. I and mean, that's almost certainly the result of lockdowns. Yeah. God. I mean, of course, we've also got the problem, we know, of the, the lockdowns uh causing i mean i did actually have the date on this i might just finding if i still got it on the actual number of missed or uh, the estimated number of missed early um cancer diagnosis but it's a very large it's a very large number right and and that is definitely having we know that along with the potential impact of the vaccine on on cancers um because there is evidence there is there is evidence that People, for example, who were in remission suddenly, um, uh, you know, suddenly were, became seriously ill again from their, their cancers. So um, all of that stuff um, is, is, say, is, is contributing to, to excess deaths now. There's been, um, I, I reckon we've had to date, uh, not to date, sorry, since we came on air, we've had a couple of hundred messages through the website. We've had dozens and dozens of tweets. They're all asking about the jabs. A nurse managed to get her way onto the BBC's um, phone in Nikki Campbell program, but but Campbell wasn't presenting it. She said one in eight hundred people in in her understanding who have had the jab or jabs have had a serious. In fact, she said very serious adverse reaction to it. Is that does that compute with with the research that that you've seen and the yes. numbers you've seen? Yes, and I believe it might be a higher proportion than that. So before you talk us through that, I've got to remind our listeners that that is way beyond the threshold where the programme should be stopped. I'm right in saying that, right, Norman? That's way beyond. Like, if it is 1 in 800, you think it's worse. But if it's if it's 1 in 800, that should have stopped the programme ages ago, right? Yeah, I mean, it should have done. I mean, you've got to remember that what what nobody seems to have spoken about much is, is what happened to the AstraZeneca vaccine. You know, the great this was the great British invention, you know, the AstraZeneca vaccine, which that, who was it, that Sarah, Sarah Kaya on... on um, in January, on what was it, morning this morning, the uh, ITV program, she said, and I quote, it was, it was safe and 95% effective. She said it was 100% effective against death or hospitalizations. Right. Now, now, unlike poor old uh, Mark Stein, who basically got booted off of GB News because Ofcom upheld a complaint about him simply having vaccine injured people on his program, right? And they decided that what was being said there was against Ofcom rules. Nobody. You know, Ofcom haven't investigated Sarah Kaya and all the many sort of, uh, you know, tele doctors who've been who are on saying similar things, which we know are not true. We know the the vaccine uh, isn't effective, right? We know it's not safe. Now, as far as the AstraZeneca vaccine is concerned, right, there were so many 
serious adverse reactions after it, especially the, the, the clotting issue. I mean, remember the BBC presenter, for example, BBC presenter Lisa Shaw, for example, died of clotting in, I think it was as very soon, April two, of uh, 2021. Because of all that, the AstraZeneca vaccine was no longer offered in the UK after the summer of 2021. In fact, I believe that in June 2021, it was no longer available because I, I the reason I know this instantly is I, I have I have a personal interest in this because somebody very close close to me was uh, seriously um, adversely affected by the second AstraZeneca vaccine, and I asked the G I, I spoke to my GPs about it and they said in, in they certainly said in June two thousand twenty one they no longer were given that you could they, they could no longer get the AstraZeneca vaccine they were only being provided with Pfizer at that point. <clears throat> And yet, you never heard about this, right? We know that other EU countries, quite openly, and it was in the news, suspended AstraZeneca, some of them as early as April 2021. But AstraZeneca was quietly withdrawn. They didn't formally withdraw it. Technically, you could still get it. A GP could, or um, a vaccine centre could still get it if they specifically or if a person specifically requested it. But to all intents and purposes, it was, it was gone. It was gone, you know, what, less than less than six months after it was introduced to great fanfare. Now, that didn't stop Dame Sarah Gilbert, who was the one who led the uh, AstraZeneca vaccine team, being given a standing ovation at Wimbledon at the end of June 2021, by which time it was no longer being offered even. And they made a Barbie doll um, based yeah. on Sarah Gilbert as well. Mattel, to encourage girls to take up science, they made a Barbie doll. Yeah. And you've got, you know, you yeah. know, we've got the, you've got the data. I mean, you've got all of the VARS data. We've got the yellow. This is, this is the, um, you know, the vaccine adverse event reaction system, uh, uh, system, a reporting system. It's run from America, but it has data from all over the world. And what are we up? We're up now to something like, I didn't look at the latest figures, something like 35,000 um, reported deaths there and several million now um, serious adverse reactions we had of course we don't know how many of those were genuinely caused by the vaccine but what we do know is that only a small proportion of the genuine serious adverse reactions from the vaccine get reported into the into the system it's less right? than so 10% this, it goes both it? ways right yeah yeah so and, to, just to qualify that uh, the likelihood of somebody reporting it's about one in 10 isn't it it, it's been, I've, I've, I've heard uh, estimates of between uh, one in five and even as high as one in a hundred. So um, I believe That's my amazing. colleague Jessica Rowe has put the figure at one in 43, but I don't know if she still stands by that one. But yeah, so it's, it's, it's a relatively, yeah, it's, it's, it's widely accepted. And this was widely accepted before, you know, before COVID that, that only alone, you know, only a small proportion do report it. And of course, what we know is that the number, the total number of adverse reactions in the VAERS system for the COVID vaccinations is more, is something like, is it something like 20 times more just in the two years since these vaccines were introduced than for all of the other vaccines combined in 20 years. And that's true. I can endorse that. That's absolutely so, true. I looked into that. That's so. And then yeah. you've got, but it, it goes beyond that. We know. Yeah. We also did an expose, I helped doing it with, with an expose on the, the um, data that the CDC in, in, the, in America were looking at. They knew, they knew, they did their own safety analysis and they found so many 
key safety signals, which you can identify from a sort of a probabilistic perspective. And we looked at that. And there were so many serious safety signals, which on their own normally in the past would have led to the cessation, would have led to the vaccines being you know, um, suspended you know, with, until further investigation. We but have the problem recent, was, sorry, Norman, the additional can I, Pfizer... Oh, sorry. Can I just quickly interject before you, before you talk about the Pfizer data, because I know you're going to bring up, bring up the Pfizer, its own um, data, um, its own safety data. You've only got to go back to 12, 13 years to see what normally happens when there are red flags around the jab. You had pandemics for swine flu. Um, some people got narcolepsy. Immediately, that was taken away. And exactly. Immediately. I mean, it was. I remember reporting on that from a radio station I was working on in Spain. I mean, it was speed of light stuff. Get this off the market. Speed of light. And this would appear to be far, far worse in terms of the impact it's having. And you, 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 you um, alluded to earlier on what happened to the MP Andrew Bridgen, Leicestershire, when he very meekly, I don't mean meek because he's not a meek guy, but I mean very gently and I would say professionally said, hey look, look over here, this is you know, there's something very wrong here let's let's do something about it and um, he had the whip removed Absolutely, and, he's, and there's and he gets no support, I mean there's, there's he's more or less, the. I mean there are a couple of others there's uh, there's Chope and a couple of others but other than that, it's there's, this isn't even discussable, look, this is another thing about the um, uh the, the the WhatsApp thing, as I mentioned before, despite all of the all of the what we're finding out about how badly you know the government handled the whole situation early on, nobody, although although it's now accepted that the nobody, I don't think anybody seriously believes that the the vaccines are effective at stopping infection and transmission. We know that was a lie, right? We do know that's a lie, and everybody kind of accepts that now, right? But what's remarkable is that they have sustained what is just as equally a big lie, which is that the vaccines, although they don't stop that transmission, infection transmission, they stop people becoming seriously ill and dying of COVID, right? How often do we hear that mantra? You know, you get the all of these media celebrities and politicians saying, you know, oh, I'm really ill with COVID, but thank God for my five, five jabs or whatever, yeah, otherwise it would have yeah, been yeah. so much worse, right? You get people like Julia Hartley Brewer, right? who was supposedly, you know, one of the main challenges of the official COVID narrative. She still bangs on even today about, you know, the jabs, you know, still stop you becoming seriously ill and dying with COVID. I mean, it's, in, it's incredible that, that that has been maintained because that's one that we have completely, we have completely destroyed that narrative. The idea that you can't become seriously ill, hospitalized and die after having been vaccinated is the one perpetual myth that just, you know that they they can't seem to let go of, and and they can't let go of it because once you destroy, once you once you show that that's not true, the entire basis for the continuation of the vaccine program, irrespective of any potential safety signals or actual adverse events, because I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about whether or not you can die with COVID after having been um, vaccinated, because if you can and you can die just as equally and maybe more likely as someone who's unvaccinated, then what the hell are we doing with these vaccines? What's the point of them? What's the point in the first place? You're listening to Professor Norman Fenton. Where are the numbers.substack.com? Norman, along with Professor Martin Neal, between them they've put hundreds of scientific papers into the public domain, peer-reviewed. They've written books on stats, decision-making, risk, 
experts, right? Norman has testified in trials. He, um, they set up the whereearethenumbers.substack.com to challenge the COVID-19 narrative and expose the use and abuse of statistics. I'm going to say it again, whereearethenumbers.substack.com. You were mentioning the Pfizer data and the Pfizer dumps when the documents were ordered to be released by a federal judge in the United States. There are even some who listen to this programme, they've been listening to this programme for years, and they thought, they, they held out some hope that when Pfizer had to release those files, oh thank God, this surely will be the end of it. Nothing, not a dicky bird from the media whatsoever. I think you were going to talk about some of that Pfizer data briefly, um, Norman, yeah, were you? That is one of the most flawed, randomised controlled trials for a, for a new drug that can, you can ever imagine. I mean, they broke all of the normal trial protocols that you're supposed to have here. They they were, um, they were they did unblinding, so that in many cases they knew whether a person had the, the, the vaccine or the placebo. They, people who had the um, placebo who got, who, who became ill, were much more likely to get, to be um, ordered to get a PCR test to, than, than, than people who'd had the vaccine and became seriously ill. So when they, when they but did their sort of 95% effective figures, it was based on a tiny number. It was based on something like, I don't know, 162, they, they claimed it was 162 people out of the 40, uh, 44,000 in the, in, the, in the trial. Only 100, 162 um, who had the placebo got COVID and only eight who, who had the vaccine got COVID. And that was the basis for their 95% effectiveness claims. But it was all rubbish. It was, it was complete nonsense because it was who they decided they would you know, they would get tested to determine whether they were a case or not. There were, there were almost as many, there were, there were lots of people who got COVID-like symptoms in the, just as many in the vaccine arm as a placebo arm, you know, but they didn't bother testing most of the people with the, in, in the vaccine arm. So you've got, you've got that, but there were all kinds of other shenanigans going on. I don't want to go into the details. It's very, you know, it's, you can find the information, not just on our blog, but elsewhere. It was an appalling, an absolutely appalling trial. And like all of these, like all of these trials and all of, all of the studies since, so that the trials are where they, they, you know, you're supposed to have a, a proper control group and a placebo group, and you work out the effectiveness from that. But you've also got the massive observational studies which followed. I now the vaccine's out, you know, is being widely distributed across a whole country. Let's look, let's look at the cases. How many of the cases of COVID are in people who've been vaccinated, and how many of them? And people have not been vaccinated. And they were making, there was these studies making similar claims, 95% claims, all completely corrupt, right? And all based on simple statistical illusions, right? For example, the most important one, anybody who got COVID within 14 days of their first vaccination was classified as an unvaccinated COVID case. And that alone, what we, what we know, we know for sure that people who got the um, COVID vax disproportionately got COVID in the first 14 days. And what? so when you do your effectiveness calculations based on, you know, on those kinds of assumptions, you can make sure, you can actually guarantee that even a placebo can be seen to be a very effective vaccination. It seems to be very effective. I've interviewed um, the German scientist, epidemiologist, uh, Dr. Sakara. Bakti, I always butcher the yeah, name. Yeah. I've had many others, Kuldor from Harvard and many others on, on the show over the years. 
and they they warned he warned back then that this mrna jab in his words at the time wasn't really a vaccine he talked about spike proteins and he explained in layman terms to me and to our listeners how he believed the jabs would ultimately eventually and i'm really paraphrasing here because he didn't use as simplistic language as this but those who have the jabs they are at risk that in the future the jabs will make them more susceptible to coronaviruses that pop up new ones that should be harmless or, or reasonably harmless to people that the immune system will be primed by these jabs these spike proteins he talked about and that in future those not everybody but some of those who've had the jabs will find that illnesses that should be pretty mild or moderate um, will be serious and possibly deadly and I don't know if there's any I know it's difficult because what are we the jabs how long have the jabs been around now a year a year and a half 14 15 months is there any evidence to suggest that you know that people are succumbing to mild seasonal you know viruses and the like I'm not sure about whether it's the um, particularly succumbing to new um coronaviruses or new new types of viruses i think as i indicated earlier that, that there is evidence of increasing cases of things like uh cancers um yeah. uh, cardiological problems i think that that it, there is there is increasing evidence there i try not to i try to steer clear of anything which requires any real medical knowledge which is why i wouldn't want to comment on the uh, on the sort of the clinical relationship between the, the what's in the vaccine itself and it's, and it's impact on that but so i'd only look at the data and there there certainly is um evidence of these of these increasing conditions which were clear as i mentioned that cdc study we saw all of the all of the adverse reactions in particular in, in cardio uh conditions neuro, also neurological conditions right there were big safety signals for, for those things. And we are seeing now the increased instances of those in people who have been vaccinated. Professor Norman Fenton is our guest. In the few minutes we have left, just a couple of things. There was a pandemic preparedness exercise in the States in 2019, attended by a number of people. Um, that's a fact, I believe. Look, I'm not going to be stupid. My listeners will, will, will murder me for saying this, but I tried to maintain some level of objectivity. Um... That could have been a coincidence. But there are people listening to this programme say, nah, that's rubbish, Richie. How could you possibly imagine that's a coincidence? They they get together to talk about this and bang, hey, presto, before you know it, in early 2020, we have a pandemic. Is that how you see it? Is that suspicious for you? Oh, that was that was, that was was very suspicious. That's not the only indication yeah. that there was planning involved in this as well. I mean, it wasn't just that particular event in uh, took place in New York, didn't it? And yeah. All of the key players there... Um, and all of the things they were saying about, you know, how they would meet that challenge, those people became key players and used the same techniques in that simulation when it, it really came around just a few months later. So there, there, there are so many, there are so many um, <laughs> of those types of coincidences, let's say, which are kind of like difficult to ignore now. Can I um, give you where I am and then I'll give you as long as you want to kind of sum up your position before we part company today. And I'm really grateful you came on, Norman. So thanks for your time. I, my my training was in uh, English and history, and then um, trained as a radio producer and presenter. Did a postgraduate in television and radio. I have no medical training whatsoever, but I'm a critical thinker. 
tell you where I think this this is going. I believe that something, if not somebody, some group of people, I don't know who they are, I have no idea, um, have decided that we, we, it's time for a paradigm shift in terms of the way we live our lives and that it's time that various organisations or authorities have far, far, far more control over what it is we can do, where we can go, what we can say, um, than we would have ever allowed previously. I think that's got a lot to do with where we're going. Yeah, a technocratic society, a, a social credit system, where everything we do is monitored morning, noon and night, and our privileges as as human beings might be determined on whether we go along with um, what the government says we should go along with, whether we take medicine that we're invited to take or not. I do really believe that. I believe it's a, a massive dystopian paradigm shift, and I believe now the brakes are off this, if this agenda has been around for a long time. And even oh, yeah. now, even now yeah. when I say it, Norman, you know, friends of mine from, from uni who know about this programme and, and family from back home, they think I'm stark raving mad. But I, that's how I see it. How do you see it? What's happening? And why? I do see it. I mean, I know that this this kind of like, it was originally Agenda 2030. It's now sort of Agenda 20, uh, 20, it was originally Agenda 2020, which they came up with in about 2008, I think. And it's now UNWF Agenda 2030. It's all about, it's all about control. It's all about... I mean, the COVID narrative was, was always primarily about control and understand the extent to which populations could be accept, could be nudged and into accepting ideas which, you know, drive things like the net zero climate change agenda, which is a key part of that, right? And it, that will move on to, you know, and, and indeed the vac, whole vaccine mandate um, type thing was always a kind of like a prelude and a facilitator, if you like, for the international digital ID and and then even you know move towards the Chinese social credit scoring system. I mean that is, and you've now got, you know, COVID lockdowns are always going to be a precursor for what are essentially climate lockdowns, which are exemplified, you know, by for example the plans for these 15-minute cities and and you know higher carbon taxes and you know and, the, and basically getting rid of all uh, petrol cars and stuff like that. I mean this is it's exactly what you said. It that is the that is the sort of the future. The, the you know the people like the WF and, and the UN these intergovernment these these sort of super super government bodies they are above the, above the governments they seem to be maybe controlling the governments I mean Klaus Schwab of the WF is boasts about the fact that they've uh, we have penetrated the cabinets you know yeah you know, they, 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 no, you know it's open it's 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 in plain sight you know people can deny it's 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 ironic because a couple of years ago if you even mention the name Klaus Schwab and the WF people said there's no such thing. They thought they thought I was making it up. <laughs> that's right. That's actually just genuinely true. They thought I was making yeah. it up, and now now they say, ah, oh, well, maybe maybe it exists, but it's but it's harmless. And a lot of people have bought into the idea. You know, these 15 minute cities. They could be yeah, it could be a great idea. Yeah, we'll you know we'll we'll own nothing and be happy, as the WF has said. People are kind of like buying into that, and that's what frightens me the most. It shows you the extent to which to which the psyops that were undertaken as part of the COVID narrative are incredibly effective at other types of control as well. Norman, you had to move a couple of mountains to come on today and rearrange a few things, so I really appreciate that. I'm going to give another quick plug to you. I don't need to because I think many of our listeners are well aware of it anyway. Uh, so congratulations, because despite all the shadow <coughs> banning and you know the total lack of interest by the mainstream media, you've done very well, you and Martin Neal, with uh, whereareTheNumbers.substack.com. Folks, all the evidence 
to support um, Norman's uh, thesis are on where are the numbers .substack.com. and if you look online for Professor Norman Fenton Twitter you'll find him very quickly listen these conversations will continue don't be a stranger Norman and uh, just sincere thanks again for your time today if there's anything you'd like to say I'm not just giving you the bums rush now if there's something you wanted to say before we yeah, close it out yeah, go ahead yeah if you, if, you, if you don't mind because you, you built me up there and you're very, very generous in in um what you said about you know, my career so far, but and and I think uh, it was you know I did have a prestigious career and I was highly respected, but it but the fact is it did all change as soon as I started to um, show that the entire COVID narrative was driven by these sort of flawed and easily manipulated statistics, and then you know I was suddenly called a conspiracy theorist, a spreader of information, and from that point on, all of my research papers on the subject were censored. I was treated like an academic pariah. Um, you know, colleagues uh, shunned me. I was kicked out of the Turing Institute where I was a fellow. I had, you know, talk, talk, you know, even talks I was going to give to our medical school, Queen Mary, people I'd worked with extensively because a lot of my work prior to COVID had been with clinicians on, on imp improved risk assessment for chronic medical conditions. You know, they all shunned me. They, they were, people were refusing. Some of my cl clinician colleagues actually removed their names from papers because I was a co-author on it. You know, the attacks against me, the 77th Brigade, we know, were, had campaigns to censor me, get me sacked from Queen Mary. I you know, had my Wikipedia page kind of like edited with yeah. sort of libelous stuff. I mean, and just and I'll finish with just a, a tweet, which was was put out by a person called Vicky Mayo, who's actually a very prominent person in pushing the covid vaccines on pregnant women. Right. And she said this is a word for word. She said. She called me a quite rabid misinformation merchant. Merchant. She grouped me, incidentally, with um, uh, Carter Malhotra as well. But she she expressed sort of disappointment that I hadn't been censured and sacked from the university. How? I won't let you get away without asking another question. I ask this sometimes when it comes up. How do you cope with that? That's. I imagine that's a million emotions at once. Um, you know, shock, obviously, horror at people abandoning you, colleagues, peers you've known for years, um, embarrassment, because, you, you know, you don't see this coming. You're a man of science. You're a man of statistics. You think, right, you know, I'll put it out there and we'll have a chat about it and we'll get to the bottom of it. And you get attacked from pillar to post. That would drive lesser men to the bottle, at least. How how did you cope with that? It must have been horrendous. It, it was horrendous. But the the good news about it is that you do find out who your true friends and colleagues are. And what's more, I have discovered, you know, through the last three years, I have met in person and online people whose views I really respect. And I've seen now how it, it I mean, I was always a little bit sceptical of, of academia, of, of most academics. And I've, I've now, you, you, you can see how awful a lot of those people who I probably thought were awful in the past. And yet I've discovered a lot of new people who I didn't know, who I really respect and I really enjoy working with. It's a brilliant and uh, positive way to end it today. Um, where are the numbers.substack.com? You've been listening to Professor Norman Fenton on Monday's Richie Allen Show. Have a great uh, rest of your evening, Norman. And once again, thank you very much. Thanks very much. And bye for now. 
Um, amazing stuff. Where are the numbers.substack.com? Professor Norman Fenton running that newsletter with his colleague, Professor Martin Neal. As I've already said, it is Monday's Richie Allen Show. Monday, that's right, Monday. The Richie Allen Show features doctors, scientists, academics and researchers who have been banned by the legacy media. Support Richie now by making a financial contribution at richieallen.co.uk. And music from The Clash will be followed by your comments. This is Rock the Casbah from London Calling. Is it? It is. It better be. It is. It's the Clash, Rock the Casbah. Chris is right. It's from Combat, Combat Rock. And I should know better. Brain free. Thank you, Chris. I stand corrected. Not for the first time. Good man, Chris. Backbeat says, when medics mention the flu or COVID jab, it would appear that this is exactly what they mean. These things seem designed to infect and not to cure or even to prevent. Chris also said, just having a deja vu type moment here, as this chat with Norman Fenton, Professor Norman Fenton, sounds just like the exasperated discussions we heard with uh, the lovely Vernon Coleman back in 2020 and 2021. That's right. Craig says vaccines have always introduced the source of infection into the body, which inevitably will cause some symptoms of the illness. That's right, Craig, the traditional vaccines. In the case of respiratory illnesses, the standard length of time of infection is about two weeks before the immune system properly combats the illness. It's a neat trick. Infect someone with the illness and then claim it is the vaccine that saves them in two weeks rather than their immune system. It's not a good point there. That is a good point. Thomas says vaccines are poison and then he says there are no pathogenic viruses. Yawn, Thomas. You don't know that. It's your opinion. You might not type at me in capital letters, you know. It's rather rude. Like, if you've got a point to make, just make your point. And it is helpful to use the term, the terminology, in in my opinion. Because you don't know this. Your truther of choice has told you this, and therefore you believe it, because it's what you want to believe. But I haven't seen any evidence that viruses don't exist. And I did allow, I didn't allow, but I did interview people who came on the programme to say that viruses don't exist. I did do that because this is an open forum. And guess what? They couldn't prove it. It's a theory. That's what it is. It's a theory. Jack says, Event 201 happened, Event 201 happened in October of 2019, as did the opening ceremony for the World Military Games, which was held in Wuhan in China. Thank you, Jack. That's a good point as well. Let me scroll down. Claire says, Richie, sometimes I feel like banging my head against the wall. You've got so many learned men and women like Norman Fenton firing out facts with overwhelming evidence, yet still people think these jobs are safe and effective. Or safe and effective could have been much worse brigade are the ones who get the limelight. It really is a mass formation we are witnessing, says Claire. And Dave, the nurse, says, wanted to get back into general nursing, went to have a look around in the A&D departments, and mask wearing for 12-hour shifts is still mandated, says Dave, the nurse. What a bunch of muppets. Patricia says, of all the people I know to have taken the jab and the boosters, they're ill all the time, having flu after flu after cough after flu. That's an interesting one, Patricia, because in 2023, I've been pretty unwell. 
started off just after St. Stephen's Day, which is the 26th of December, Boxing Day, as we say here in Blighty. I was unwell for a few days and I missed the first couple of shows in 2019, uh, 2023, 2023. And then I recovered from that. And then I had a bit of an illness again in January, late January, not too bad. But uh, a few weeks back, I got a horrendous um, pneumonia and it was pneumonia, diagnosed as pneumonia and uh, nasty. And I got over the worst of that. Again, I didn't miss too much of the Richie Allen show. Thank God for that, right? And then I got this head cold thing, which I'm dealing with now, and you can still hear it in my voice, and it won't go away. Now, it isn't preventing me working. It isn't preventing me going out for a run. But it's a lingering, excuse my language, bastarding thing. Now, of course I never had a jam. Of course not. Damn right. Neither, neither even did, did my better half. So I've had no jabs. She's had no jabs. Now, she's very healthy. Um, thank heavens for that, right? She's not been smothering with any viral stuff this winter. But I have. And I didn't have a jab. So I hear you loud and clear that people who've had the jabs and who've had the boosters, some of them that you know, Patricia, are ill all the time. But I had nothing. And I'm not ill all the time, but fairly regularly with these smothery, niggly, shitty things. And I've done my best to mitigate stuff. I don't drink tap water anymore, you know. I don't. I don't eat very much. It's funny, really interesting interview with uh, Dr. Ahmad Malik on Thursday last. And he talked about eating one meal a day. I eat more than one meal a day, but I don't eat much. My portions are very small. And I'm not eating an awful lot of processed stuff. I'm not. And yet these things. And when I mentioned this previously, somebody came online to tell me that uh, they believed it could be, you know, my proximity to people who have been vaxxed. But I don't spend much time next to people who've been vaxxed. At least not, not that I know of, because I, I don't see very many people from one day to the next. Example, I'm out at 5.30, 5.40am with the dogs. I'm not seeing anybody. Occasionally, I see a, a lady called Nicole who's got a beautiful German Shepherd dog and they play together, the dogs, we have a chat. But uh, I don't know what our status is, vaccines. And, you know, we're out in the open air. So I'm not buying the shedding thing. I'm also not immune to it. I'm not, no pun intended. I'm not closing my mind to it. <laughs> I just don't know. David says, I think I'm going to put an advert out for my business saying there's a 20% discount for unjabbed customers. My, doing my little bit in planting new thoughts in the zeitgeist. You might get some press coverage, David. 20% discount gets their attention. Then they see the conditions. <laughs> Most will not qualify. But it would certainly get some attention. It would get notice, says David. You might be right. It's uh, 13 minutes to the top of the hour. And Rob says, Wasn't Desmond Swain told by the likes of Dolores Carl, Professor Dolores, and Mike Eden about the jabs back in 2021? And at that time, he did nothing but give the impression... Or, or sorry, he, he did nothing but gave the impression he knew what they were doing. Okay. I've read that as you typed it, Rob. I think I know what you mean there. Yeah, that's interesting. On the excess death numbers, Wayne, who likes to research these things or so he tells us, no reason to doubt him, he says the research he's seen shows no excess all-cause mortality deaths for 2020 for the year as a whole. And that's around the world 
not just in the UK. He says he believes there were excess deaths, deaths even he says he believes that there were excess deaths for specific months, but this can be explained by the Midazolam cocktails and care home disaster, etc. The same can be said for the similar policy that was being rolled out globally. Uh, to read these comments, go to richieallen.co.uk and uh, just drop in where it says live comment. Very good. Thank you. Okay. And Faisal says, I have a theory that many deaths were covered up in previous years, since the Grenfell Tower atrocity, where it was proven that fatalities were not reported if they were unable to identify them. Having got the news article to hand, says Faisal, but the figure went up weeks later when families, or when a family, was able to identify one of the bodies. Thanks so much for all of your comments. And Donald has been on from Ireland to say, Richie, the Irish authorities completely stopped recording suicide stats for the year 2020 when the lockdown started. Is that right, Donald? I didn't know that. Thank you for that. Angela asks, could the excess death figures in 2020 be down to the flu jabs of 2019? I know three people who had serious illness after them, after having a flu jab in 2019. Thank you, Angela. The time now is fast approaching 10 minutes to the top of the hour. It's Monday's Richie Allen Show. Speaking of Ireland, I don't know if you found, uh, came across this on the website, my website, richieallen.co.uk, but this is interesting. News talk in Ireland is, is reporting that Twitter users in Ireland can no longer report tweets which they believe to be misleading or spreading disinformation. Newstalk.com says the removal of the feature is one of many changes made by the social media platform since Elon Musk took over as the CEO. Kiron O'Connor, a senior analyst at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, told Newstalk the changes have meant reduced safety for users and less accountability for the company. This, this concept that you're unsafe if Twitter, the arbiter of what is and isn't true, doesn't take something away. This notion that if I go on Twitter and I read some outlandish claim by somebody, that I am unsafe if that claim isn't deleted before I see it, is truly dystopian, diabolical diatribe, isn't it? It's bollocks, isn't it? Yet this is an idea whose time has come, or its time has come, this notion that we need to be protected. We've got to be protected from seeing things that are untrue because we're too fucking thick to realise they're untrue and look after our own minds. And we could be influenced into voting for somebody based on some nonsense we see on Twitter. It's bullshit, but it's here to stay and will is making up, of course, the online safety bill, which is the next big thing with the next big attack on free speech and freedom of expression coming to the UK uh, and coming to the UK very soon. Yeah. They must be raging in Ireland, all the snowflakes. Oh, God, last week I was able to report somebody for saying something that isn't true. And this week I can't. <laughs> it's not safe on Twitter anymore. Fantastic. And you know, ordinarily... I'm not in favour of people going to prison unless they've committed a crime. You know, if, unless, they've, unless it's for a violent crime. Even white-collar crimes. 
okay, there are limits. I mean, when people defraud people out of, you know, their life savings or their pension, whatever. Yes, yeah, at times a custodial sentence is appropriate. But by and large, I'm not in favour of chucking people into prison. Unless it's for murder or for rape or for assault or whatever. You know, repeat offenders and what have you. But I must say, and I take no joy in this, none whatsoever. Because I don't take things personally and I don't take any joy in this. But I do agree with the judge's decision to sentence Stephen Pritchard to five weeks in prison for obstructing a motorway in October 2021. He's a guy who basically glued himself to the tarmac on a motorway to cause nuisance to the public. He backed up... Um, what, what did they say he did here? Let, let, let me just bring it up here. I mean, to be fair to the guy, he was very successful. 10,000 drivers <laughs> were affected when Stephen Pritchard and three other protesters glued themselves to the tarmac on the M4 near Heathrow, West London, in October 2021, when they eventually got this guy off the tarmac. He was charged. It's come to court. And Inner London Crown Court found him guilty of causing a nuisance to the public. And um, he was um, banged up for six weeks, five weeks. His uh, co-conspirators who glued themselves with him, they were given suspended sentences. Uh, They were ordered to do 100 hours of community service. He will go inside where he'll spend about two weeks in jail before he'll be kicked out the back door and sent home. The judge said... It's not appropriate for me to suspend your sentence. You'll serve up to half of it in prison. But then a part of me, again, feels like, a little bit feels like a hypocrite because in the case of some of these people, there's an evangelical fervour around some of these people. Like, they believe it, don't they? Many of these people believe that the world is coming to an end. Climate change. And didn't Greta Thunberg delete a tweet that she had posted in 2018? And she's had a bit of stick for this today. Greta tweeted, um, she tweeted in 2018 that unless we stopped using fossil fuels immediately, that basically the world would not recover, that catastrophic climate change would happen, that the consequences would be irreversible if we didn't stop using fossil fuels now. Obviously, we're at 2023. The world is still using fossil fuels. So Greta discreetly deleted the tweet. But obviously there's a lot of attention on this young woman. And somebody noticed that she had deleted the tweet. And uh, a number of conservative media channels today were, were, were quite happy to point that out. Listen, that's it for Monday's Richie Allen Show. Uh, thank you for being with me. Really enjoyed uh, the show today. Enjoyed your company. Thanks so much to Professor Norman Fenton. And also, thank you to Professor Martin Neal, because Martin helped set the interview up. Do check out whereearethenumbers.substack.com to find the references which uh, Norman used in our conversation. Find them on there, whereearethenumbers.substack.com. Join me tomorrow at 5 o'clock UK time for Tuesday's programme. In the meantime, enjoy the rest of your Monday. Look after yourselves and one another. Closing out with the Eagles. Because why not? See you tomorrow. Bye now.